0: Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Grant, Janet Reitman, Tom Juno, Eli Saslow, Ben Montgomery, Lane DeGregory, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I'm going to replay an interview I did with Will S. Hilton in March of 2014. At the time, we talked about his excellent book, Banished, the 60-year search for the missing men of World War II. I'll tell you a little about that book in just a minute. But first, I want to let you know about Hilton's most recent piece in the New York Times Magazine. The essay was headlined, My Cousin Was My Hero, Until the Day He Tried to Kill Me. It's a brutal yet important piece that looks at toxic masculinity and how it impacts all of us, and how it nearly ended Hilton's life. Hilton opens up entirely about his own life in this piece, and is not always pretty. That's what makes the essay so effective, and hopefully impactful. You should go and read it now. I've linked to that piece on GangryThePodcast.com. When Hilton and I talked back in 2014, he had just finished his first book, Vanished. The book focuses on the modern-day search for one American bomber that crashed over the Pacific Islands during the war. That bomber carried 11 men who, for decades, were listed as missing in action. Hilton actually started this project thinking it would just be another magazine story.
1: And I, I just, I, I venerate the magazine form. Uh, I always have. It's, uh, to me, it's the sort of perfect gem like distillation of a story. And it comes with all of its own special um, kind of habits and history that are quite different from either nonfiction books or newspaper writing, so broadly speaking, Um, and and I I just love it. I mean, it's just, this is the form that I've always wanted to work in. But what happened was, um, this particular story kind of forced me to, to try a new medium.
0: Hilton said he always struggles with organizing his thoughts and notes, even when he's writing long magazine pieces. He said those struggles were magnified by 10 times on this book project
1: this will sound like uh, false modesty or something but I, it's the truth it's just like the flat simple truth that I'm totally comfortable with and that's that I'm sort of barely smart enough to hold all of the various ideas in mind as I'm trying to figure out structure for a magazine piece um, and it, and for a very long magazine piece I can't I can't do it um, and, I, and a lot of times I end up having to really you know print out a horrible draft and cut it up with scissors and use tape to sort of move things around because I can't in my mind remember all of those pieces and figure out how to reorganize it. I have to like, I have to sort of like see it in front of me.
0: Hilton's work has appeared in the New York Times magazine, Harper's, The New Yorker, Esquire, GQ, Rolling Stone, New York, and many other magazines. He's been selected for numerous anthologies, including the Best Music Writing, Best American Political Writing, Best Business Stories, and Next Wave, America's new generation of great literary journalists. As usual, I've linked to a lot of Hilton's work on our website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. Will Hilton, thanks for joining Gangry the Podcast. Oh, thank you. Uh, let's start off by talking about Vanished, um, your book that came out. Uh, when did that come out? uh november 5th november 5th 20,
1: 2013, 2013. which will live in infamy
0: <laughs> can you give <laughs> us a, a, a synopsis of the book
1: well as you can guess from the illusion it's a world war ii book um it's uh, takes place in the pacific um and in a lot of ways it's it's also about the present. it's about the search that was conducted for a period of 60 years um, by amateur um, sort of sleuths and explorers as well as a special division of the military to find out what had happened to this one bomber plane that, that vanished on, a, on a, a mission against the Japanese-held garrison uh, of the Palau Islands in 1944. And this plane was um, seen to go down um, by air, anti-aircraft fire, but um, it was also so, some of the crew members were seen to pop off the plane And uh, when the military went to find um, the wreckage of the aircraft um, as part of this um, massive post-war effort led by a a unit called the Graves Registration Service um, in 1946 and 1947, the plane wasn't in the sort of shallow and narrow channel where it uh, was seen to land or to hit the water. Um, And the uh, question always kind of remained, um, where in fact that plane ended up, and how many of the men had parachuted off, whatever became of them, whether any of the other crew members had survived, um, and all of this—these questions were sort of exacerbated by a, a lot of rumors that circulated both inside the military and in the families um, about some of the guys surviving, uh, in some cases possibly for a very long time. And so, so the the book sort of traces. The story of those crew members and of their families, and these explorers, and trying to just sort it all out.
0: How did you first learn about this story and what was going on uh, over there in the Pacific? Well,
1: uh, so I sort of came into it sideways. I mean, I was uh, I was embedded with the um, with the unit that is um, that's responsible for uh, recovering the remains. So once a plane like this or or a ship or uh any place where uh US service members are believed to have been killed in any war over the last hundred years or so, once it's found, um, this this special uh unit um deploys um uh, to, to sort of bring home the bones and, and and test them for DNA and figure out uh who they are so that those remains can be returned to families for a proper burial. It's just, it's this very kind of unusual and, and, and sacred thing that we do to, to keep leave no man behind policy, um, you know, sort of uh, apparent to the the people serving today. It's it's reassuring for people serving today, and it also uh, provides closure for families who have spent years waiting. And I I was interested in doing a sort of a broad survey of how this work unfolds across a lot of different landscapes, and so... Um, You know, the plan was that I would go to a bunch of different locations. They work in the Himalayas, they work, you know, on Greenland, they work, you know, in the ice of Greenland, they work, um, you know, in tropical jungles of Southeast Asia, where, you know, US service members died in the Vietnam War, whether that's in Vietnam or in Cambodia or Laos. Um, and, of course, they work in the in the Pacific. They work in, in, in Europe. Sometimes uh, the remains of U.S. service members will be found on a construction site in Belgium or something. Um, and so I got to the first of this whole series of sites we were going to explore. And it was this huge barge out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And uh, I was sort of standing on the barge with all these um, elite military service members swarming around. I mean, from all the differences, you know, they had Navy divers in these big hard hat helmets jumping off the side of the barge and disappearing to the bottom for long periods of time, then coming up with rusty pieces of metal and things that looked like bones, but might have been coral, and that had yet to be determined. And then they had these, you know, Air Force historians who are trained to identify from even the tiniest little fragment of, uh, you know, metal or or whatever, glass, uh, what uh, aircraft or ship uh, the the. Uh, the part came from and whether it's period correct for what's believed to be in that uh, patch of ocean or in that piece of jungle. Um, and so all these different people are swimming around doing this thing, but I couldn't see what they were doing because it was deep under the underwater. Um, and I, and I, and I was trying to get permission to dive. I'm a certified diver and i Felt very comfortable going down, but there were r- r- restrictions against that um, because the Navy doesn't like to have civilian divers. Uh, actually, the Navy was probably the least of my troubles. They have some restrictions. The bigger restrictions came from the recovery unit, um, which was sort of um, per- they, they were sort of saying it's too dangerous and and we'll get in trouble if you get hurt, kind of thing. So the liability question became prohibitive, and I just I just kind of had told the the captain who was leading the mission that until I had a better sense of what was going on there. I wanted to stick around. I wasn't ready to move on to the next site. Um, and as as days turned into to a couple of weeks or a few weeks, um, it, it became more and more important to me to understand that one site and use it as kind of an index or a proxy for um, this whole larger question of bringing home the remains of service members, rather than having some broad, expansive, you know, survey of the world to really kind of bring it home in a in a specific case.
0: Now, now, this broad survey was that going to be a book originally, or was that a magazine piece, or what were you kind of? What it was, was
1: your... a it was a magazine piece. Yeah, I mean, I, I never, I never really imagined that I would write a book. To be honest, um, I've been length journalism for most of my career. In fact, most of my life at this point. Um, and I, I just, I, I venerate the magazine form. Uh, I always have. It's a. Uh, To me, it's the sort of perfect gem-like distillation of a story, and it comes with all of its own special um, kind of habits and history that are quite different from either nonfiction books or newspaper writing, so broadly speaking. Um, And I I just love it. I mean, it's just this is the form that I've always wanted to work in. But what happened was um, this particular story kind of forced me – to, to try a new medium. Um, I couldn't do what I wanted to do either in the space or in the amount of time I had to do the piece for GQ. So, you know, I, I like the piece for GQ, but it didn't have the story that I wanted to tell cause I didn't know the rest of the story yet. It was a couple of years after that story came out before many of the the primary questions were, were resolved. Um, and some weren't really resolved until shortly before press time for the book. Um, so I kind of got forced to try this other medium. And as it happened, I fell in love with with the medium. i I, I don't quite know how to explain it, but um, I just uh, you know the the levels of complexity that that I was able to experiment with in the book form were were really super exciting. Um, and I had not foreseen that they would be. Um, I think so many nonfiction books don't hold my attention. Um, and and lag in in places where I feel like magazine writing is often more dynamic and exciting. And so, um, you know, I, I had always kind of imagined that that the process would be boring in ways that magazine writing is not boring, and that spending years working on one project wouldn't suit me. Um, but but it, it there's this whole new creative. Uh, you know, sort of canvas that I'm, that I, that I now feel like I would, I would be happy to work on again.
0: Did, um, you have to change your, did you change your process at all? Your writing process? Um,
1: (laughs) Oh fuck yeah, man. It was a nightmare. (laughs) Like I didn't know how to work, you know? Um, I got off to a lot of false starts. I ended up, ultimately I ended up um, using a new kind of software called Scrivener, Mm -hmm. um, to help me organize my, my thoughts, um, I mean I'm sort of barely this' this will sound like this will sound like uh false modesty or something, but I, it's the truth it's just like the flat simple truth that I'm totally comfortable with, and that's that I'm sort of barely smart enough to hold all of the various ideas in mind as I'm trying to figure out structure for a magazine piece um and it, and for a very long magazine piece i can't I can't do it um and I, and a lot of times I end up having to really you know print out a horrible draft and cut it up with scissors and use tape to sort of move things around because I can't in my mind remember all of those pieces and figure out how to reorganize it. I have to like, I have to sort of like see it in front of me. And, um, and to do that for something that's, you know, 10 times even longer and more than 10 times more complex was just, a uh, I I just kept failing at it in these horrendous ways where I'd realize after a year of working on a manuscript that absolutely nothing in it, was worth salvaging, um, and then that software totally broke me free because it's it's a really visual um, organizational tool, um, and it's a, it's like having sort of an infinite size corkboard, um, and and it's it's but it's more dynamic than a corkboard. I'm sure there are millions of things that that software can do that I don't that I didn't do with it, but but the the things that I used from it the the features that it has that were useful to me weren't available anywhere else, and um, and I, I definitely couldn't have done the book the way I wanted to do the book without it, and and so I mean yeah I just completely had to rethink how it worked, and I wouldn't necessarily bring those methods back to the magazine form because um, it's cumbersome you know it's cumbersome to put all this stuff into a program and it feels sort of distant but it was a necessary concession for the book, and I was enormously grateful to, to be able to do it. I don't know what I would have done if I was working 50 years ago, you know. It's not that long ago.
0: Yeah, the the book, um, uh, I, could, I could see that being difficult to kind of organize because you float back and forth in time a lot uh, and back and forth between a lot of characters. Um, did you anticipate that that would happen going in? Yeah.
1: I mean, to the extent that I anticipated, I I didn't write a proposal for the book. I was lucky that um, the magazine article was out there. So there were different publishers who were interested. And and it it occurred to me pretty early on that I wouldn't have to do a proposal. And I certainly didn't want to do a proposal. And so the inevitable um, downside of that is that um, I didn't have – I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about how I wanted the book to – unfold. I had, I had written an email to uh, one of the publishers who was bidding on the book, and he was the guy who ended up buying the book, and he had written me sort of an offline email apart from the bidding just saying, hey, I know you didn't want to write a proposal, but just give me a sense, a better sense of how you see it. And so that was the closest thing I had to a sort of fully formed, this like you know, 300-word email to a fully formed uh, plan um, it didn't end up being that close to what I finally did, but it did It did include this idea of having all of these um, sort of emerging from the crash of this one plane. And that was thematically very important to me um, because if the plane was going to be a symbol of all the lost planes and ships and service members from all of these different wars, I needed to talk about or, or better yet demonstrate how uh, vast the sort of ripples of grief that extend out from that little patch of water where it went in.
0: Yeah, I think the thing that I really also like about the book is that, at least from a reporting standpoint, um, I read the book and I'm just in awe of the different types of reporting that you had to do. Um, So from interviewing people, um, like the living family members uh, of of the men who, who died in the crash, to historical research, to to following, you know, some of these people around who are searching, um, that's all very different type of types of reporting. Can you talk a little bit about how how you manage that?
1: Yeah, um, some of it was some of it was reporting of a similar grain to what I normally do. You know, going out and and seeking the people who can tell the, their own stories um, or who can speak authoritatively to um you know a sort of dense academic subject so in the case of how the war unfolded finding an expert to talk about that was not so different um in some ways from finding an expert to talk about I don't know gene therapy or something maybe for a magazine piece I could be writing um and finding someone to talk about their sense of loss and 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 the the long torment of of the uncertainty of not knowing whether their you know husband or father uh, survived it was, it was in some ways comparable to finding you know interviewing a uh, 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 a woman who had to give up custody of her child and 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 you're you're sort of in this very tender area. You have to kind of make sure that you get enough information to convey what what their story is to the reader. And so you're asking questions that are not always easy to ask. They're certainly not easy to answer. And um, some of that sort of balance of of of, you know, the, the, the work life balance in, in a, in a sense, I guess your sort of obligation as a human and your obligation as a reporter. Um, and what's, what's, what falls in between them, um, was, was comparable. Other things were totally new to me. Um, you know, the Ar- the national archives was a complete mystery. I had never had occasion to go into the, you know, a <laughs> couple of billion cubic feet of records stored in the most Byzantine and frankly archaic way. Um, you know, poor, they're just it's not through any fault of the archivists who are a national treasure, to be honest. are the happiest federal employees I've ever encountered. But um, just because there's so much stuff and it's so old that it's not always organized in a way, in the, the way you'd like it to be. Um, and in some cases, somebody 60 years ago filed something under the wrong heading. And that still is that way because nobody's ever retrieved it before. Um, and so, you know, figuring out how to do all that took a lot of help. Um, from the archivists and from outside people uh, that I knew who had been there before, um, and, and and trying to master those record finding skills was also a big time suck. I mean, if I had to do it now, it'd still take a long time, but it wouldn't take anywhere near as long because all those wrong turns down some you know alley of microfiche at the National Archives can end up equaling a month of your life.
0: Yeah, I found uh that archivists are so eager to help you find things and I think it's because like people don't go and look that stuff up very often anymore that they're just so excited that somebody's there and cares <laughs> yeah. th- about something that they have, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah. And they sort of see it as a as a mystery unto itself. So I was sort of examining a mystery substantively but there's this other mystery of like we know this somebody must have recorded this information how would they have recorded it and where would they have recorded it and then who if it's not filed where you expect it to be filed how would somebody make a mistake what kind of mistake would they make you know so i found stuff on palau filed under the philippines (laughs) because you know back then people saw it as part of the same basic you know theater of the war and it was you know these guys were part of the macarthur's column across the south which was heading for the philippines and and so some of the archivists in the 1940s or whatever put put things in a folder for the philippines which actually pertained to palau i mean it's hundreds of miles away across the open ocean but um that, that's a that to them i think and it and and to to me as a reporter also becomes this little puzzle that you get to do right. and 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 when you find something in the wrong folder and it's useful to you it's definitely a rush
0: yeah i found that doing the actual research the archival research is a lot of fun at least for me but then trying to make that stuff come to life is so hard and you do a really great job of it can you talk had you done that that type of writing before where you're using some historical records or was that new and and what was that process like for you
1: Well, first of all, thank you. Um, But no, I hadn't really done that. I think it's, I think there's a parallel to what I do often find myself doing, um, which is writing on deadline, when, you know, maybe the information I have is not as complete as it could be, or as I'd like it to be. And maybe that's even my fault sometimes, you know, maybe I didn't ask the right questions. But now the person has been put under a gag order, uh, and I can't get another interview, or now it's, you know, eight o'clock and the story's shipping at 11 and I need to rework this paragraph and there's just no time to go to get the person on the phone, at least not in a polite way in the middle of the night. And in a lot of times when you're writing, um, nonfiction, I'm sure you find this too, you have to work with what you've got. Um, and so, you know, what you're trying to do is find the data points that, uh, become, Suggestive of the larger whole, and so you're really only telling the person, you know, A, G, M, and Y, but you're trying to suggest the sort of shape and scale of the alphabet, or maybe a better, more evocative description would be like, you you know, where the stars are in the sky, and what you're trying to do is suggest the constellation, you know, the image, um, and you can get it wrong for sure. Um, and, and you don't want to suggest things that aren't there, but like in the cases of this, um, of, of this research, I would find, let's say the commander of a squadron describing the morale of a campsite, um, going down over a period of a couple of weeks for various reasons having to do with the supply chain running thin. And I would find a description of somewhere else in the archival records of, um, of you know how people were repurposing old um, fuel tanks to make pontoon boats and, and spend their free time out on the water hooking fish. And then I could know from a letter uh, from someone writing in 1944 that um, this particular member of the air crew I was writing about um, was on J- July 12th um, walking down the beach um to uh dinner and and so I could I could write that he's walking down the beach and I could describe what was happening in the water on a typical day and I could describe you know the general malaise of the camp um and you know these things appear to be in his point of view but you know you if you just state the facts you know then this that that appearance is is what's between the lines you're not actually putting it in his point of view because you don't know you know, what he feels or what he personally is seeing, but you know that that was there to be seen and you know that that atmosphere is what others saw or experienced. And so you can kind of put these things next to each other and hope that the space between them, you know, fills up with life.
0: Can you talk about, I guess, some of the people in the book um, that you kind of followed around or or reported on? um, And how long i i guess i'm thinking about pat scannon who seemed to be this person who was completely open with you uh was it la- was it that way from the get go or did did it take him some time to come around to you
1: i think the funny thing with with pat is that he and i did hit it off uh person to person very early um i you know i was uh i was sort of showing up already on a deadline cuz i didn't even know pat scannon existed and he he was the one who had found the site where the barge was in the Pacific and where, you know, the military believed they would find the remains of this air crew. And they believed that it was at least part of the missing plane. Um, But they weren't telling me much about that at that point. And at the very end, somebody whispered to me that I needed to reach out to Pat Scannon. So... I found out who he was at the sort of the last minute and and flew out to California and met with him and he was kind enough to take the meeting he he was himself leaving for another trip to palau for more searching for more airplanes uh you know days away and and he set aside some time and and we, we sat in his office and we talked about a whole bunch of stuff that that I didn't have space to get into in the article, which is part of what made me feel like I had to write the book but um but in it the the i say it's a, i say it was funny because in spite of all of that in spite of that sort of person to person connection um with pat there's a there is a real challenge in writing about him and that is that um you know he had all these uh he had this need to do this work as a civilian not working for the military not having any family connection to this plane or palau or even the whole pacific war And he had started flying out year after year to do these kinds of searches and and try to bring home answers for random family members that he didn't know of what had happened to their relatives 60, 70 years ago. And yet he didn't know why. And he also had not done a lot of work to sort of probe the reasons why. Now, he did have a diary that he eventually let me um, make copies of. And I mean, this was... You know a couple thousand, maybe more than a couple, but this is a lot of pages I mean it was book after book after book, when you pile them up on the desk, it just takes up a whole desk, uh you know two feet high and so there was this tremendous record of what he had done, and he had some sort of interior probing passages in there, some of them written really quite beautifully um but 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 most were about what he saw, what what he sort of uh, experienced and what he was thinking as he was trying to sort through the puzzles of this plane or that plane and what would have happened to it. And, and yet underneath all of it, there was this question of why is this guy doing this? You know, why, what, what brought him here and what drives him? And that was something that was a lot less compelling to him than it was to me. And so, you know, I started having to interview the people around him and look into his past, ended up finding out more about sort of his family, um, and some of it was stuff that he didn't even know. For example, um, you know, he had never read this book that his stepfather wrote, um, but he knew that his stepfather was interested in that subject. And that subject was about uh, the sort of benevolent power of the military um, when it's turned towards peaceful post-war kinds of purposes, you know, nation building or civil action. And, and, and the, you know, so so in the process of reporting on Pat, I wasn't just depending on Pat to tell me what he knew or what he felt. I was also kind of trying to spur him to think about what he knew and what he felt and and so that he would then be able to tell me something he hadn't previously known.
0: How did you, um, how did you organize all of the notes that you no doubt ended up with uh, through I, I read you reported on this book for five years.
1: Yeah, so I, re- I reported on it for four of the five years, and then I spent about a year really um, trying as much as possible not to report except where I really had holes that I needed to fill because you know, reporting can become a rabbit hole for sure. There's always more that you would love to know, and if you're fascinated in a subject, reading about it is certainly a lot easier than trying to craft an original narrative. Um, and so I did at a certain point try to... Um, try to say, try to say to myself, okay, you have to move forward on, on writing and, and not, not continue reporting.
0: How, how did you organize the notes though, from everything that you had? um... So
1: that's, I, I, I wish I could claim to have organized them. I mean, I, I, I did digitize almost everything. Um, so except for all of the, you know, there are hundreds of books and things, but um, all those kinds of, you know, like Pat's Pat's uh, journal entries all ended up being photographs, um, a photograph for each page. Um, everything I got from the National Archives, and I mean, that was thousands upon thousands of pages, all became photographs as well. Um, and letters from various service members' uh, home, which I collected from all these different families, um, became photographs, and so I put a lot of that stuff into iPhoto, which is the Macintosh um, photo handling or photo management software. It comes on every Macintosh. I'm sure that Picasa is probably about the same, and so are probably a hundred others that I just don't know about. Um, and, and on in iPhoto, you also have the capacity to make albums of you know one photo or a hundred photos. And you can um, date the photos when they were taken, and so I started to date photos that were archival photos, or you know whether they were letters or mission reports or whatever. I gave them the date on which they were written, and then they sort of flowed naturally in the browser for the for the software uh, in order, so that I could see that this letter was written on the same day. As this mission report, and I could see what you know Johnny Moore or somebody was writing home right after he had been on this mission. I could read about them both next to each other, and I found that to be very useful i didn't have to um, go and make those correlations uh, manually i could I could just let the software if I had some new document, I could just drop it into the software, put the correct date on it, and it would appear in the right part of the of the browser but but it didn't you know that didn't mean that it would correlate to anything that I had read in a book or, you know, interview transcripts that I had and all that stuff just kind of, um, became this, this series of folders and files that, that eventually became so overwhelming that I needed the Scrivener, uh, program so that I could start going through, let's say a list of notes I had assembled somewhere along the line on prisoners of war held by Japan. Um, and I would make a, a uh, you know uh, index card type of thing in the software that would have those notes in it, uh, um, and then another card for something else, and another card for something else, and I could start to move them around and build the architecture of how I wanted the story to unfold, and where those kinds of information would be embedded into the the thrust of the actual plot or the narrative.
0: Uh, Will, we're going to take a, a short break right now. Um, we'll be back with Will Hilton. Uh, this is Gangry the podcast. Gengar the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism Program at Fairfield University. The Bachelor of Arts degree in Digital Journalism is a rigorous 12 course program designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to take part in today's quickly changing media world. The podcast is also brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. The college grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection, while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. To learn more about the Digital Journalism Program and the College of Arts and Sciences, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm here with Will Hilton, who wrote the book Vanished, the 60-year search for the missing men of World War II. Uh, Will, this isn't the first time you've written about a plane crash, I guess, so to speak. Uh, in 2011, you wrote about Air France Flight 447 for the New York Times magazine. Uh, can you talk about that story and kind of uh, uh, what drew you to it? Are you interested in plane crashes generally?
1: Uh, I'm not. Um Generally, but um, but there were certainly a lot of things about that crash that interested me uh, from from the outset, and and largely because I had been writing this book, um, you know that that was a huge passenger jet that took off from the shoulder of Brazil and was heading was going to kind of skirt the the western edge of Africa and get to to Charles de Gaulle uh, in in France. And uh, it just didn't make it. It just dropped off the radar. It dropped out of communication. And that's it. That was all anybody had. So of the 200 and some passengers and crew who were on the manifest, there was a family for each one, uh, an extended family for each, each person who had nothing, nothing to hold on to. They had this same sense of that, of of the person simply having vanished. I mean, it, literally in the middle of the night. This plane was a overnight flight, and uh, it got halfway across the South Atlantic Ocean, and poof, it was gone. Um, and it was the biggest uh, such disappearance ever. And so, um, you know, the, the, right away there was a an, an element of um, there's a sort of an echo of what I was working on in the peace, with the grief and the loss of the families and the uncertainty. There was also at a more sort of simple level, uh, a, a huge expedition being undertaken by Woods Hole, which is the wonderful uh, organization up on Cape Cod that um, does everything that you can do in the ocean. Um, and they had, Used, they had, they have this, this incredible army of robots, uh, underwater robots that they um, send out on all sorts of different uh, scientific purposes, and they had committed to send some of these um, subs to find the, the, the plane. And uh, the director of special projects there, a guy named Dave Gallo, who has one of the most watched TED talks ever, because he's just this incredibly exciting personality whose every utterance is worth hanging on in my view and apparently the view of many uh was was leading that um in in conjunction or or, or leading the planning for it i should say and uh in conjunction with this team that was actually going to be on the water managing the robots um and and i was allowed to go uh, down with dave to brazil before the the vote set out um with the subs and uh and, and and a lot of this, tech, this search technology was already familiar to me, um, you know, at, at a sort of less ambitious scale—not quite the, the subs that the Woods Hole group has—but um, other side scan sonar equipment and the, the process of how you search for something underwater um, was very much a part of what I was studying for the book. So you know, going down and doing something that was current but touched on a lot of these the same science and the same themes was was interesting to me, and, and it felt like it was of a piece with the kind of work I was doing at the time generally.
0: Is there a type of story, maybe a subject matter, that you are drawn to as a reporter and a writer?
1: There's not, and I'm sort of scared to become focused on on any sort of area. I mean, I have very strong opinions about magazine journalism as a craft, mm-hmm. um, but in terms of the the content, the subject, or the beat... Um, I've never wanted a beat. I think that there are certain very clear advantages that come from having a beat, but I'm not interested in them. Um, I'm interested in, in in trying to grasp grasp for the advantages that come specifically from not having a beat, from sort of showing up each time with uh, an open mind and a lot of questions, some of them very, very simple and maybe embarrassing Um, But over time, you know, developing from the answers to those questions, new questions and so on and so forth on a daisy chain until you get to some place that because you're an outsider, you're thinking to ask and maybe people haven't been thinking about a lot. And so you can kind of get to these weird corners of stories that uh, a beat reporter might take for granted just because of this, the, the length and depth and breadth of their immersion in the material.
0: I think I read somewhere uh, that you started writing for the Baltimore Sun when you were in high school. Can you talk about I, that? Is that was that your first reporting job? Yeah,
1: it was. I was uh, I was sixteen when I started there, um, and it was uh, it wasn't a I wasn't supposed to be writing, but they went through a period of upheaval, and uh, and a lot of reporters ended up leaving, um, and so there was I mean it was just. It was just a very simple situation where there was nobody there weren't enough people to fill the, the column inches they ended up eventually closing the evening sun there, were, there was a morning and an evening paper these two totally separate papers with separate staffs they ended up closing the evening sun as a separate entity that's where I was supposed to be uh, working as an intern during high school um, and, and folding it into The Morning Sun. So the two papers still came out, but they were basically the same paper for a period of time. And even still, there weren't enough people left. So many hundreds of, of people from the editorial staff had left. And, um, and so, you know, the editor of the features section said to me, you know, why don't you go out and check, check out this or check out that? And I'd come back with my own sort of take on things and, of course, have to be sent out again. Uh, but over time, I started to I started to get some nice uh, some nice experience from that, and, and I got to learn a lot from it. Um, and I got a lot of bylines. I started running the the phrase uh, staff writer under my name, which was not technically accurate, but I was happy enough to, to see it there. Um, and and I would kind of I I kind of just stopped going to, to high school. Actually, I wasn't. It was a lot more fun to go to go to the newspaper and report a story
0: what drew you to that in the first place?
1: I was, man, I was, uh, as a kid, I was, I was that kid who had piles of rolling stone stacked up six feet high on every wall, which my mom loved. Um, (laughs) I was just completely obsessed with the sort of weird, uh, deep stories. Um, you know, it's, I should say to, to, uh, to listeners that it's February 13th and the, Gang Gray podcast with Mike Sager just dropped online like two hours ago. And so right before we started talking, I was listening to it. And I mean, Sager is one of those guys who was writing for Rolling Stone when I was in high school and and was absolutely one of the reasons I got into this. I mean, he had all these unbelievable pieces like the Wonderland Gang piece, you know, Devil and John Holmes, the Biggest one for me was probably the Pope of Pot. That just had a huge impact, mm-hmm. and he also wrote this epic story in the in the Washington Post, where he started out um, about tracking Marlon Brando to Tahiti, where Brando is sort of in the early stages of his descent into madness. And the the piece was a total subversion of every everything, every convention in the celebrity you know form, and and it was that aspect of what Sager was doing even more so than the than even the the freakiness of his characters, but the way he handled form that was so important to me, and it made me so interested in this magazine work. Um, and even when I was at the Sun, you know, because I was reading that kind of stuff, I was trying to find ways to do it. And I mean, that's a it sort of raises this thing that's very much in the air right now because this form is more accessible to more media you know i mean it, it's it's had a lot of names over the years the current term of art is long form um but it's also been called like narrative nonfiction, or narrative journalism or creative nonfiction, or a whole bunch of other things but the the the, the basic fact is that whatever you call it it has this very specific kind of um i mean it has a lot of internal diversity don't get me wrong that's what's great about it but as it has it's very clearly in in essential ways, not the straight news, right? And, you know, so unfortunately, like 90% of the time, in my view, 90% of the time that newspapers attempt to go long, they don't go long in the way that I would characterize as being this kind of storytelling that, that the people who are on the Gang Great podcast do work on. Of course, some of them are newspaper writers. And I think that generally speaking, you know, what we're talking about is also perfectly possible to do in newspapers. But a lot of times when newspaper editors assign the stories, they don't ask for something that's weird and structured differently. I mean, this, this form that we're talking about is whatever kind of paper it's printed on, it takes a different uh, architecture and it, it has, it emphasizes different things than straight news. So, you know, like the newspaper form generally wants you to um, hurry very quickly in the story into who, what, and where and then uh, get get into how and why right, at, right off the bat with a nut graph that sort of defines what the story's going to say or is saying and there's this very important dictum in, in newspaperdom that, about don't bury the lead, I mean that's being repeated by journalism professors at every uh, school a lot, um, but that's very different from what you and I are talking about and what, what I'm sure you teach and 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 it's, you know, what we're talking about is a much less rigid form um, in which you actually do bury the lead deliberately. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do try to lose the reader and keep them wondering, you know, if not who, what, and where, certainly how and why. And you're focusing uh, right from the get-go on character and setting. And, uh, you know, you can have David Grant who's going to leave you wondering whether the person in the story is innocent or guilty right up until the end. I mean, he might even deliberately mislead you about it or, or allow you to be misled about that question. Or you could have Susan Orlean start a piece of one of the great magazine pieces of all time talking about what she's going to do after she marries this 10-year-old boy, you know, or Tom Genot telling you what the timbre of some rapist's voice sounds like, mm-hmm. just what his, what his voice sounds like, totally ignoring, you know, the crime and the criminal, but, but just starting in this strange and sort of lovely and frightening place Um and then building up tension and uncertainty, and and letting the narrative unfold very slowly, and and uh, sort of eventually culminating with some kind of closure, for lack of a better word, but but refusing to do it before it must. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know this new, the availability of the digital form with with all these wonderful websites like gangrae but but also byliner and longform.org are breathing this new life into this medium because you can really see the best examples of that work in a way you couldn't before i mean this shit used to be passed around like fucking samizdat man like this was you would get richard ben kramer's profile of ted williams as i did from andy ward at esquire sort of handed to me in this rumpled and crinkled form that he had pulled out of a filing cabinet and i'd furtively read it and give it back to him to pass on to the next writer for inspiration um And so that's very, very cool, and that's very, very fortunate because it helps keep the form alive in a way that I think a lot of us working in this medium worried it would not survive the digital era. But on the other hand, there is some risk, I think, because we see, like my own paper, the New York Times, has done some very big and very public long form, and I would put it in square quotes in that reference, uh, work that doesn't really adhere to the to kind of doesn't have the strangeness that I'm talking about, doesn't have the sort of um, peculiar angles and edges that I like to see in the form. Um, and I think that's what, when people worry about the name long form, they worry about, like James mm-hmm. Bennett of the Atlantic, which is one of these great homes for long form writing um, and always has been. I mean, like since the beginning of time, right? And he wrote his piece not too long ago, sort of criticizing. The word long form as a name for this medium. I actually don't have a problem with the word long form, but I think his deeper point was that um, it's about something much, much different from length. It's sort of about how the piece is structured within that length and, and whether it's constantly circling back to reinforce a nut graph or unfolding in this much more sort of crooked and delightful fashion. And so, you know, when newspapers like, like the New York Times get that wrong, I'm afraid it waters down the meaning on the other hand, when somebody like Amy Harmon at the New York Times writes long form, she does it so beautifully that I almost can't believe it and like Michael Cruz, who's been a a great podcast uh uh participant, is maybe the greatest I've ever seen at it, and he's he's doing it for the for the t b times so it certainly can be done in in all sorts of wonderful places it could be could be done purely in a digital way um but I think that there's this fundamental character to it. That is different from the conventions of newspaper writing, and, um, and and I just love it, and that's all I ever wanted to do, man.
0: Yeah, yeah, I like that we have a, a, phrase, a term that that is gaining traction, but I I think the term long form um, can be misleading sometimes too because it's not necessarily what we're doing. You know what I mean? Right. Um, We're not just writing long. We're writing something differently. It's deep. There's a difference between long and deep. Maybe we should change it to deep form or something like that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But, uh, well, hey, uh, Will, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been so great talking with you.
1: Yeah, same here. Thank you.
0: We've reached the point of the podcast where I normally tell you that I've been talking to so-and-so and that you can find us on iTunes and whatnot. I'll get to that in a bit. But after Will and I ended the formal interview, we kept talking. I mentioned how lucky I feel to get to talk to so many awesome reporters and writers, and he talked about how great it is to be able to listen to those reporters and writers talk about their craft. Writing, especially literary journalism, can be an isolating craft, and it's nice to know there are others out there. We also talk about a mutual acquaintance, the novelist and literary journalist Michael Downs. I'll let Will pick it up from there.
1: Oh, man, I know. I'm so jealous. A lot of the people you have on, I can't wait to hear what they're going to say about the craft. You know, there has not been a conversation about this craft in a public way ever.
0: Right, right. So
1: it's so cool to listen to this stuff and hear people that you've admired from afar for so long talk about what they do and how they feel about it. And, yeah. and, you know, sometimes I'm like, wow, that's so, so different from the way I think about it. But other times they'll like in the way a great comedian can articulate something that I sort of believed or knew or felt, but had never identified before. So it's fucking amazing to, to just have that exist in the world. You know, this was such an isolating thing to do for so long. Yeah.
0: And I think the awesome thing is everybody does it differently.
1: Too. Yeah.
0: Um, And that's cool. I mean, that's awesome. That's why we get different stories and, and and that's one thing that I think has been fun and and one thing I try to teach my students that you know what I can, I'm going to tell you how I do it but it doesn't mean that's how you're going to have to do it right um, right right so it's a lot of fun so totally. hey how do you know Michael Downs uh
1: he and I were um I was going to be teaching this class uh at the Towson, uh, university, um, masters in writing program. And he and I ended up talking and, and because he was sort of the representative of the program. And then we just decided to do it together. Um, because he comes as much from a, you know, fiction background as from his nonfiction, mm-hmm. like House of Good Hope, which I think is a fantastic nonfiction book. And, and so he really is good at emphasizing in the nonfiction world, the need to sort of get weird with your sentence structure mm-hmm. or even with your story structure and stuff, and it was really fun to just kind of pair up with him and kind of tag team these students who had, in a lot of cases, been taught a very different way of doing it, or or were coming back to school from uh, from years in the grind of newspapers and you know having to kind of rethink all of the things that their editors had beat into them for years. <laughs> so it was really nice to have another voice, you know, in the room, kind of saying actually you don't have to do it that way and there isn't a right way you know yeah that's there, awesome. we started to tap in uh, patch in people like what what i guess you were doing with michael cruz earlier people that um we just thought were great examples of of how diverse and varied this work can be and we'd, we'd have them skype in to class and so ever since then he and i get together on a regular basis and just pound whiskey and talk about what great stuff we've read recently
0: That was an interview I did with Will S. Hilton back in March of 2014. We talked about his book, Vanished, the 60-year search for the missing men of World War II. On May 8th, the New York Times Magazine published his essay, My Cousin Was My Hero Until the Day He Tried to Kill Me. I've linked to that essay and much more of Hilton's work on the website. You can find that at GangryThePodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y Podcast. Gangary the podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by Fairfield University's digital journalism program and the College of Arts and Sciences. Our music comes from Audionautics. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.